All right, everyone, welcome back to the History Podcast. This week, we are going to be uploading quite a few of the upcoming topics for history, looking at the new industrial order in the last three decades of the 19th century. Also going to be looking at the rise of an urban order and kind of how the cities are starting to change with the political machines and the party bosses and kind of the beginnings of the progressive era. And we're also going to be, of course, talking about the progressive era as well. And a lot of the reforms that start to come into play as like the big businesses and corporations were building monopolies and taking over a lot of various aspects of American society. So lots to come this week. So let's go ahead and dive in here. So the new industrial order, what we're looking at. So the earliest uh, European settlers, they would really look at a lot of the uh, marveling, really, at these merchant commodities of America. You know, we had a lot of silver in the Spanish Empire. There were lots of forests, huge timber industry that could be tapped into. And so what sets the new industrial economy apart from the older America is the scale and the efficiency of using all these resources. And there's a lot new technologies that are coming into play in the 19th century that make it possible to use these natural riches in ways that were never even dreamed of in decades and centuries before. So, for example, <coughs> excuse me, uh, iron, for example, it had been forged into steel as far back as the Middle Ages and when it was being used for swords, of course. And in the 1850s, there were inventors in England and America that discovered a cheaper way to convert large quantities of iron into steel, and this was called the Bessemer process. And steel is lighter than iron. It can support 20 times as much weight. It lasts 20 years instead of three. And soon we're going to be seeing steel tracks carrying all the railroad traffic, Steel girders replacing cast iron frames and buildings, steel cables supporting these new suspension bridges, various things. And industrial technology is making some natural resources more valuable. There's going to be new distilling methods that transform this very thick, smelly liquid called petroleum into kerosene for lighting lamps, oil for lubricating machinery, paraffin for making candles. There's a lot of various uses for petroleum that they had never really thought of before because what used to light lamps in the past prior to this was usually whale oil. But beginning in 1859 there's going to be new drilling techniques that start to tap into these huge pools of petroleum below ground. And about the same time there's going to be the Frenchman Etienne Lenoir that constructs the first practical internal combustion engine. After 1900, we see new vehicles like gasoline-powered carriages turning the oil business into a huge major industry. And the environmental price of all this industrial technology is soon going to become very evident. Coal mining, logging, and the industrial waste from factories, these are all going to start to wreak havoc on the environment. So. They're the most obvious sources of environmental degradation at this point. And sometimes even the cure comes at a cost. And for instance, when engineers tried to clean up the very polluted Chicago River by reversing the flow, it ends up 
just shifting the pollution to the rivers downstate. So it didn't really do much of anything else. But industrial technology is going to rest on invention. So for sheer inventiveness, the 40 years following the Civil War, we've rarely seen this matched in American history. So back between 1790 to 1860, we saw about 36 patents registered with the United States government. A patent is a legal document that's issued by the government giving the holder exclusive rights to use, make, and sell a process, a product, or a device for a specific period of time. And when the patent runs out, other people can start to use the same thing. We hear about patents all the time. We just rarely think about them, really. But over the next three decades, for so after 1860, for the next 30 years, we're going to see the U.S. Patent Office grant more than half a million patents. And one fact helps to account for all this growth. So the process of invention is soon going to become systematized. So small-scale inventors are soon going to be replaced by these like more orderly con- invention factories. And these are kind of the forerunners of expensive research labs and like think tanks, for instance. So no one is going to do more to bring system order and profitability to invention than good old Thomas Alva Edison. So after developing a more efficient stock ticker, he's going to set up himself as an independent inventor. And for the next five years, Edison is going to pat a new invention almost every five months. Huge. And Edison, he's very determined to try and organize the process of invention. And only then could breakthroughs come in a more steady and profitable stream. He's going to move 15 of his workers to Menlo Park, New Jersey, where in 1876, he creates an invention factory. So kind of like a manufacturer, Edison was subdividing all the work among the more gifted inventors, engineers, toolmakers, others. And soon this more orderly bureaucracy is going to evolve into the Edison Electric Light Company. And Edison gets the credit for patenting the light bulb which many people argue, well, it was really invented by Nikola Tesla, who was working for him at the time. But soon we're going to see the Edison Electric Light Company delivering not only light bulbs, but a unified electrical power system, central stations that generate all the electric current wired to the users. So this is basically like the first power grids, so to speak. And so all of them are going to power millions of small bulbs and homes and businesses to all the customers. George Eastman, he's going to revolutionize photography. He makes the consumer a part of his inventive system. In 1888, Eastman is going to market the Kodak camera at the good old affordable price of $25 at the time. The small black box is going to weigh about two pounds, contains a strip of celluloid film that replaces hundreds of pounds of photography equipment, which before this they used to use what were called daguerreotypes. So now we're going to see after a hundred snaps of the shutter, the owner simply sends the camera back to the factory and waits for the developed photos along with a reloaded camera to return by mail, all for $10. 
So what unites all these innovations is the notion of rationalizing inventions, making a systematic business out of all of them. So by 1913, Westinghouse Electric, General Electric, U.S. Rubber Company, and other firms are going to set up research laboratories. By the middle of the century, we're going to see research labs spread beyond business to the federal government, universities, trade associations, and also labor unions. So you're kind of starting to see how everything's starting to broaden, but connect everything all together in the country. So there's a lot of these abundant resources, new inventions that just remain worthless <clears throat> to all this industry unless they can be moved to processing plants, factories, and offices. And with more than three and a half million square miles of land in the U.S., distance is kind of daunting at the time. So where about 100 miles of railroad track would do for shipping goods in like Germany and England, they're going to have to have about 1,000 miles necessary for the same thing in America. <clears throat> so having an efficient internal transportation network is going to tie the country into an emerging international system. By the 1870s, railroads are going to crisscross the country and steam-powered ships that have been introduced just before the Civil War, they're going to be pushing barges down rivers carrying passengers and freight all across the oceans as well. And between 1870 and 1900, the value of American exports is going to triple. So eventually the rail and the water transportation systems will be fused and connected together. So by 1900, railroad companies own nearly all of the country's domestic shipping lines, steamship lines. And so a thriving industrial nation is going to also require having effective communication. Information is a very precious commodity, as we know, and it's very essential as resources or technology are to industry. And in 1844, that we talked about in a previous podcast last uh, semester, it was succeeding in Samuel Morse. He had succeeded in testing his new invention, the telegraph. He tapped out the first message over an electric wire between cities. His very first message, just so you know, was a biblical verse. What hath God wrought was what he had said in his first message. And he's going to be using Morse code, right? So communication using Morse's code of dots and dashes is going to become virtually instantaneous and so useful to railroads was the telegraph that they allow poles and wires to be set along their rights of way in exchange for free telegraphic service. So by the turn of the century, we're going to see a million miles of telegraph wire handling about 63 million messages a year. And not to mention, we're going to also see a lot of these messages starting to flash across underwater cables that are going to be connecting to China, Japan, Africa, and South America as well. So a second innovation in communication is going to be the telephone. This is going to vastly improve on the telegraph. Good old Alexander Graham Bell, a Scottish immigrant, was teaching the deaf when he began experimenting with ways to transmit speech electrically. And in 1876, he is going to transmit his famous first words to his young assistant and his first, first, 
or the first words ever heard on a telephone are going to be, Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. Or Watson, I need you. And so no longer do we see messages require a telegraph office. You know, we don't see all these dots and dashes. The couriers don't have to deliver all these translated messages anymore. So now communication is instantaneous and direct. So before the turn of the century, Bell is going to organize the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, AT&T. It's going to combine more than 100 local companies to furnish business and government with long-distance service. Telephone patent is going to prove to be the most valuable patent ever granted. Granted. Excuse me. So, finance capital. All right. So, as all this industry is growing, so does the demand for investment capital. The money spent on land, buildings, and machinery. So, the need for capital is great, especially because so many new industrial systems are being put into place at once. Each often required enormous startup costs. Industrial processes involving so many expensive systems couldn't really take shape until someone raises the money to finance all of it. So for the first three quarters of the 19th century, investment capital had gone come mostly from savings of firms. And then the last half of the century, we see capital deepening. This is a process that's very integral for industrialization that takes place. So just to kind of put it into simple terms, as the nation's wealth increased, more people have more money to save and invest. And that means more funds can be lent to companies trying to start up or expand. Capital deepening is the key to financing all this new industrial order. So savings and investment grows more attractive with development of a complex network of financial institutions, commercial and savings banks, investment houses, insurance companies. All these give the savers new opportunities to channel their money into industry. The New York Stock Exchange, which had already been in existence since uh, 1792, is going to bind and link these eager investors with more money-hungry firms. So for the business leaders with the skill to kind of knit and weave the industrial pieces all together, large profits are, you know, awaiting them. So this is the area of the notorious robber baron. So to be sure, there's a lot of uh, ruthlessness that goes a long way in this fortune building game. And so to survive over the long term, business leaders, they can't just depend on ruthlessness alone. They need ingenuity, an eye for detail, gift of foresight. So the growing scale of enterprise and the need for capital, for example, it leads them to adapt an old device called the corporation to all these new needs. Now the corporation had a lot of advantages over the traditional forms of ownership. So which were just the single owner and the partnership. Now a corporation can raise large sums of money very quickly by selling stock certificates or shares in the business. It can also outlive the owners or the stockholders because it requires no legal reorganization if someone dies. It limits liability because the owners are no longer personally responsible for any corporate debts. It separates the owners from day-to-day management of the company as well. Professional managers can now operate complex businesses And so it's very clear all these businesses, so before the turn of the century, corporations are going to be making about two-thirds of all the manufactured products in the United States. 
So no new industrial labor can could have been created without having an abundant labor force, right? An abundant pool of labor. In 1860, it took about 4.3 million workers to run all the factories, mills, and shops in the United States. By 1900, there's going to be 20 million industrial workers in America. And in part, the U.S. is relying on this very vast global network to fill the need for workers. So in Europe, as well as Latin America, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, seasonal migrations provided a very rich source of workers for many countries, including the United States. Mechanization, poverty, oppression, ambition, it pushes a lot of these rural laborers from the farms into industrial cities and to other continents once the steamships start cutting travel time across the Atlantic to about a week or so by the 1880s. So between 1870 and 90, more than 8 million immigrants arrive in the United States. There's going to be another 14 million by 1914. Some are coming from Asia and Latin America, but most are going to be coming from Europe and settle down in industrial cities. And like the migratory laborers elsewhere, they were hoping to find work, you know, fatten their purses, get some money and go home. And there's one estimate that says about as many as 60% of all immigrants return to their homelands from the United States during these years. And the immigrants relied on very well-defined migration chains of friends and family. So someone from Poland might find work with other uh, Slavs in the mines of Pennsylvania, or if there's like a daughter of Greek parents, New England textile mills that are filled with relatives, etc. Labor contractors were serving a funnel to industry as well. So kind of tough and savvy immigrants themselves, they met newcomers at the docks and train stations with contracts. Among Italians, they're known as padrones, as among the Mexicans, they're called enganchistas. By 1900, these uh, work contractors, basically, they're going to be controlling about two-thirds of the labor in New York. And there's some 11 million rural Americans that provided a homegrown source of labor as well between 1865 and 1920. And driven from the farm by machines or bad times or just following dreams of a new life, they move first to small and then on to larger cities. Most lack the skills for high paying work, but they speak English. Many of them can read and write. In iron and steel cities, as well as in coal mining towns, the better industrial jobs and supervisory positions go to them. Others found work in retail stores or offices and slowly start to enter the new urban middle class of white collar workers. Most African Americans continue to work the fields of the South about 300,000 moved to northern cities between 1870 and 1910. And like the new immigrants, they were trying to escape discrimination and follow opportunity. One by one, they bring their families. Discrimination is still going to follow them, but they do find employment. Usually they will work in low-paying jobs as like day laborers or laundresses, domestic servants. And so we see black entrepreneurship is going to thrive as black-owned businesses start serving these growing black communities. Mexicans, too, come in search of jobs, mainly in agriculture, but also in industry. With Chinese immigrants, they're going to help to build the Transcontinental Railroad from California, where the railroad ends at Sacramento, and they're going to push east. And after the turn of the century, it's going to be a small number that turn farther north for jobs in the tanneries, meatpacking plants, foundries, and rail yards of like Chicago and other Midwestern industrial cities. All right, so 
America's first big business, just in case you didn't know, is the railroads. So just to kind of put into perspective, back in 1882, the year T.S. Husson is going to travel across America. We see clocks in New York and Boston. They're 11 minutes and 45 seconds apart from each other. Stations often had several clocks showing the time on different rail lines, along with one displaying the local mean time. In 1883, without consulting anyone, the railroad companies are going to divide the country into four time zones an hour apart to clean up this inefficient mess. And Congress doesn't get around to making the division official until 1916. So it's going to be over 30 years before it's official policy in the U.S. But at the center of the new industrial systems are going to lay the railroads. They're moving all the people and freight, spreading communication, reinventing time, tying the country all together. Railroads are also going to help stimulate economic growth. (laughs) Thought I had to sneeze there. Sorry, excuse me, folks. But they stimulate economic growth simply because they require so many resources to build. You got to have coal to power the engines. Got to have wood for, you know, seating and such. Glass for the windows. Rubber. Brass. And by the 1880s, there's going to be about 75% of all U.S. steel is going to be used on these railroads. So by lowering the transportation costs, Railroads are going to allow manufacturers to reduce prices, attract more buyers, and increase business. And perhaps most important, as America's first big business, they're going to create techniques of modern management that will soon be adopted by other companies. So to the men that run them, railroads are going to provide a challenge in organization and finance. And in the 1850s, one of the largest industrial enterprises in America, the Pepperell Textile Mills of Maine, are going to employ about 800 workers. By the early 1880s, the Pennsylvania Railroad had nearly 50,000 people on their payroll. From paying workers to selling schedules and rates to determining costs and profits, everything requires a level of coordination that was unknown in earlier businesses. So the so-called trunk lines, they come up with new systems of management. There's going to be Tons of early companies that service local networks of cities and communities, often with less than 50 miles of track. During the 1850s, longer trunk lines emerged east of the Mississippi to connect the shorter branches or the feeder lines. By the outbreak of the Civil War, there's four great trunk lines under one single management. Railroads are now going to link the eastern seaboard with the Great Lakes and the western rivers. So the operations of large lines spawn a new managerial elite. They're beneath the owners, but they have wide authority over all the daily operations. So just for an example, Daniel McCallum, who's superintendent of the New York and Erie Railroad Line in the 1850s, he laid the foundation for the system by drawing up the first table of organization for an American company. So to kind of as a visual representation think of like a tree trunk that has all the roots that represents the president and the board of directors five branches would constitute the main operating divisions lees stand for the local agents train crews and others information moves up and down the trunk so that the managers can get reports to and from all the separate parts so these managerial techniques are soon going to be spreading to other industries local superintendents are mainly responsible for daily activities 
Central offices serve as the corporate nerve centers. They're housing divisions for purchases, production, transportation, sales, and accounting. And so we see a new class of middle managers that run them and impose new order on business operations. Executives, managers, and workers are being taught to operate in increasingly precise and coordinated ways. So this represents a revolution in management and becomes the most important contribution of the railroads to the rise of big business. So while managers are making operations uh, more systematic, the big struggle among railroad companies to dominate the industry is anything but precise and rational. So in the 1870s and 1880s, the pain of all the railroad competition starts to kind of rear its ugly head. So the most savage and costly competition is going to come over the prices charged for shipping goods. So managers lower prices or rates for freight that was shipped in bulk on long hauls or on return routes. Since the cars are empty anyway, they used rebates, secret discounts that are given to preferred customers to then drop the prices below the posted rates of competitors and then recoup the losses by overcharging small shippers like farmers. When the economy plunged or a weak line was wanting to improve their position, rate or price wars would break out. By 1880, 65 lines had declared bankruptcy. And consolidation works better than competition. So during the 1870s, railroads uh, were creating regional federations to pull all the traffic, set prices, and divide profits among the members. Initially, the pools achieved their goal of reducing these rate wars, but because they lack the force of law, they ultimately failed. Members would break ranks by cutting prices in hopes of quick gain. In the end, rate wars die down only when the weaker lines fail or stronger ones brought, bought up the competitors. So earlier in the 19th century, many railroads were relying on the state governments for financial backing. They also looked to counties, cities, and towns for bonds or other forms of aid. People would take stock in exchange for land or labor, particularly those living near the ends of rail, line, rail lines that stood to gain the most from construction. So in the 1850s and 1860s, Western promoters went to Washington for federal assistance. Congress loaned about $65 million to six Western railroads and grant about 131 million acres of land for all of this. And government aid helped build only part of the railroads. Most of the money comes from private investors. The New York Stock Exchange expanded rapidly as the railroad corporations start to trade their stocks there. Large investment banks were developing financial work networks to track down money at home and abroad. By 1898, about a third of the assets of American life insurance companies had gone into railroads, while Europeans owned nearly a third of all American railroad securities. And because investment bankers were playing such a large roles in funding the railroads, they find themselves advising companies about their business affairs. If a company fell into bankruptcy, bankers sometimes served as the receivers, who oversaw the property until financial health returned. By absorbing smaller companies into larger ones, eliminating rebates, stabilizing rates, the bankers would then help reduce competition and impose order and centralization on the railroads and other corporations. So in the process, they would gain control of the companies they advised. By 1900, these new 
industrial systems were transforming all of the American railroads. About 200,000 miles of track were in operation. 80% of it's owned by only six groups of railroads. Time zones allow for the coordinated schedules. We see standardized track, so we no longer have different rail gauges, but it's all uniform. That allows for easy cross-country freighting. You don't have to stop and change lines or track. And soon passengers are going to be traveling about 16 billion miles a year. So to that traffic, you add farm goods, raw materials, factory finished products as well. So everything starts to move with the new regularity that allows businesses to plan and prosper. And now we're going to look at the growth of big business during this time. So in 1865, near the end of the Civil War, the 26-year-old John D. Rockefeller, he sat blank-faced in the office of his Cleveland oil refinery, about to conclude the biggest deal of his life. His business is thriving, but he had fallen out with his partner over how quickly to expand. Rockefeller is eager to grow fast. His partner was not. They dissolved their partnership and agreed to bid for the company. Bidding's going to open up at $500 and soon it's going to skyrocket to $72,500. And then it's going to abruptly stop. And the partner is going to say, the business is yours. The men shake hands and Rockefeller's now happy. 20 years later, Rockefeller Standard Oil Company is going to control 90% of the American country's refining capacity in an empire that stretches well beyond just the Cleveland refinery. So there's going to be trains that are carrying the Standard Oil Company executives to New York, Philadelphia, and other eastern cities. It's going to be a very fitting form of transportation for his company because the railroads are the key to his empire. They pioneered the whole big business systems that he was building on. They carry his oil products for discounted rates, and so it gives him a little bit of an edge to start squeezing out some rivals. And we're going to come back to Rockefeller in a little bit. But first, a business riddle kind of has to be solved. You know, how to grow and still control all the plagues of competition. In Michigan in the 1860s, salt producers were finding themselves fighting for their existence. And the presence of too many salt makers had begun a big round that was seemingly endless of price cutting. It's driving everyone out of business. And so seeing com combination as kind of their saving grace, they're going to draw together in the nation's first pool. In 1869, they will form the Michigan Salt Association. They voluntarily agree to allocate or distribute all the production, divide up markets, set prices at double the previous rate. And soon we see uh, salt processing in other industries that had specialized in consumer goods. They have very low startup costs, so they're often very much plagued by competition. Horizontal combination, where you join together loosely with rivals that kind of offer the same goods or services, that's what saved the Michigan salt producers. So by the 1880s, there's going to be a whiskey pool, a cordage pool, countless rail pools, and others. And these are very informal ones, but they ultimately prove to be unenforceable and therefore unsatisfactory. So after 1890, they're going to be also considered illegal restraints on trade. But other forms of horizontal growth, like formal mergers, these are going to be spreading in the wake of an economic panic that hits in the 1890s. <clears throat> 
So some makers of consumer products worry less about the direct competition and concentrate more on boosting efficiency and sales. So they're gonna adopt a vertical growth strategy where one company gains control of two or more stages of a business. So for example, let's take the New England butcher Gustavus Swift. He had moved to Chicago in the mid 1870s aware of the demand for fresh beef that's back east. He's gonna acquire a new refrigerated rail cars to ship the meat from Western slaughterhouses and a network of ice cooled warehouses in Eastern cities to store it. By 1885, he had created the first national meat packing enterprise, Swift and Company. And Swift is moving upward closer to consumers, putting together a fleet of wagons to distribute his beef to the retailers. He's gonna move down towards the raw materials, extending and coordinating the purchase of cattle at the Chicago stockyards. By the 1890s, Swift and Company was a fully integrated, vertically organized corporation operating on a nationwide scale. And vertical growth is gonna generally move producers of consumer goods closer to the marketplace in search of these high volume sales. The Singer Sewing Machine Company and the McCormick Harvesting Company is gonna create their own retail sales arms. Manufacturers start furnishing ordinary consumers with technical information, credit, repair services. Advertising expenditures grow to about $90 million by 1900 in an effort to identify markets, shape buying habits, and increase sales. And with a lot of this integration that we see going on, one example we're gonna talk about is good old Andrew Carnegie soon. So industrialization is encouraging a lot of this vertical integration in heavy industry, but more often in the opposite direction toward reliable sources of raw materials. So all these firms make the products for big users like railroads and factory builders. The markets are easily identified, changing very little. And so for them, success lay, lies in securing, or securing sorry, the limited raw materials and in holding down all the costs. And so Andrew Carnegie, he leads the way with steel integration. So he was a Scottish immigrant, worked his way up from being a bobbin boy in a textile mill to being an expert telegrapher to superintendent then of the Pennsylvania Railroad's Western Division by the age of 24. And he has a string of wise investments that pay off very handsomely. And among other things, he is going to own a locomotive factory and an iron factory that becomes kind of the center or nucleus of his steel empire. And then back in 1872, he's on a trip to England. He then gets the chance to see the Bessemer process for himself, gets to see it in action. He's very awestruck. He dreams of all the profits that can be made from cheap steel. He rushes home to build the biggest steel mill in the world. It's going to open in 1875 in the midst of a very severe depression. And over the next 25 years, Carnegie is going to add mills at Homestead and elsewhere in Pennsylvania and move from railroad building to city building. Carnegie succeeds in part by taking advantage of the boom and bust cycle. He jumps in during hard times, building and buying when the equipment and businesses are cheap. But he also found skilled managers who employ the administrative techniques of the railroads. And Carnegie knows how to compete. He's going to scrap machinery, workers, even a new mill to keep the cost down and undersell his competitors. The final key to his success is going to be expansion. He spreads his empire horizontally 
by buying up the rival steel mills and constructing new ones. He's going to spread it vertically by buying up the sources of supply, transportation, and eventually sales. So controlling such an integrated system, he's going to ensure a steady flow of materials from the mine to the mill and the market and get profits at every stage of the business. And in 1900, his company is going to be turning out more steel than Great Britain and is going to net $40 million. So back to Rockefeller now. So John D. Rockefeller, he accomplished in oil what Carnegie did in steel. But he goes further, developing a very innovative business structure called the trust. This promises more control than even the integrated system Carnegie had done. So at first, Rockefeller was specializing in refining petroleum. He grows horizontally by buying out or joining other refiners. To cut the cost, he's going to expand vertically with oil pipelines, warehouses, and barrel factories. By 1870, when he and five partners are going to form the Standard Oil Company of Ohio, his high-quality, low-cost products are going to set the competitive standard. And because oil refining business is a jungle of competitive firms, Rockefeller proceeds to twist some arms. He's going to bribe rivals, spy on them, create phony companies, and slash prices. His decisive edge comes from the railroads. Desperate for business, they grant Standard Oil not only rebates on shipping rates, but also drawbacks, an additional fee from the railroad to Rockefeller for any product shipped by a rival oil company. The railroads proved to be his most significant advantage over his competitors. Within a decade, the Standard Oil Company is going to dominate American refining with a vertically integrated empire that stretches from drilling all the way to selling. So all throughout the 1870s, Rockefeller kept his empire stitched together through informal pools and other business combinations. So, But they're weak. They offer very little or too little control he could try to expand further except the corporations were restricted by state law and in rockefeller's home state of ohio for example corporations cannot own plants in other states or own stock in out-of-state companies so in 1879 samuel ct dodd he's a chief counsel of standard oil comes up with a new device known as the trust this is a business arrangement where the sh owners or shares of a business uh, turn over their shares in trust to a board with power to control those businesses for the benefit of the trust. So the stockholders of a corporation, they give up their shares in trust to a main board of directors with the power to control all the property. In exchange, stockholders receive certificates of trust that paid off very hefty dividends. And since it did not literally own other companies, the trust violates no state law many of which were trying to limit the power of big business by preventing one corporation from owning stock in another. And in 1882, the Standard Oil Company of Ohio is going to form the country's first great trust. It brings Rockefeller what he wanted so much, that centralized management of the oil industry. And other businesses are soon going to be creating trusts of their own. And meatpacking, wiremaking, farm machinery, uh, these are all some examples, but just as quickly, trusts become notorious for crushing out rivals and controlling prices. And the trust is only a stepping stone to an even more effective way of avoiding competition, managing people and controlling businesses. That is going to be the corporate merger. 
So the merging of two corporations, one buying out another, remained impossible until 1889 when New Jersey began to permit corporations to own other companies through what becomes known as the holding company. So this is a company that holds stock in other companies. Many industries converted their stock or converted their trusts into holding companies, including Standard Oil, which had moved to New Jersey in 1899. Two years later is going to come the biggest corporate merger of the era. And this is going to be the creation of a financial whiz named J. Pierpont Morgan. His very orderly mind detests the very chaotic competition that threatened his profits. And after the Civil War, he had taken over his father's powerful investment bank, House of J.P. Morgan, House of Morgan. Uh, for the next 50 years, the House of Morgan is going to play a part in consolidating almost every major industry in the country. And Morgan's biggest triumph comes in steel. In 1901, a big steel war was looming between Andrew Carnegie and the other steelmakers. Morgan convinced Carnegie to put a price tag on his company when a messenger brings a uh, message back over $400 million. Morgan is going to nod and accept the price. He's going to buy out then Carnegie's eight largest competitors as well and announce the formation of the United States Steel Corporation. This is a very mammoth holding company that produces nearly two-thirds of all American steel. Its value of $1.4 billion exceeds the national debt at the time. The mergers are going to make U.S. Steel the country's first billion-dollar corporation. And what Morgan was helping to create in steel was rapidly coming to pass in other industries. We're going to see a wave of mergers sweep through American business after the Depression of 1893. And as the economy plunged, we see a lot of cutthroat competition that bleeds businesses out until they're eager to sell. Giants, these corporate giants, sprout almost overnight. And by 1904, in each of the 50 industries, one firm comes to account for 60% or more of the total output. So as Andrew Carnegie's empire was growing before he sold it, so does his social conscience. And preaching a gospel of wealth, he urges the rich to act as agents for the poor, doing for them better than they would or could do for themselves, is what he says. He's going to devote more and more of his time to philanthropy by creating foundations and endowing libraries and universities with about $350 million in contributions. And defenders of the new corporate order are less troubled than Carnegie about the rough-and-tumble world of big business. They justify the system by stressing the opportunity created for individuals by economic growth. And through frugality, acquisitiveness, and discipline, the sources of, you know, cherished American individualism, they believe anyone can rise up, like Andrew Carnegie. When most ordinary workers fail to follow in his footsteps, defenders were blaming the individual. Failures were lazy ignorant or morally depraved, they're saying. British philosopher Herbert Spencer, he's going to add the weight of science by applying Charles Darwin's theories of evolution to society, social Darwinism, we see here. He maintains that in society, as in biology, only the fittest survive. So the competitive social jungle dooms the unfit to poverty and rewards the fit with property and privilege. And Spencer's American apostle, William Graham Sumner, argued that competition was natural and had to proceed without any interference, including government regulation. 
millionaires were simply the product of natural selection. Such social Darwinism was finding very strong support among turn-of-the-century business leaders. The philosophy certifies their success even as they work to destroy the very competitiveness that it celebrates. So meanwhile, a group of radical critics mount a very powerful attack on corporate capitalism. Henry George, he's a journalist, a self-taught economist, he proposed a way to redistribute wealth in his book, Progress and Poverty, published in 1879. And George attacked large landowners as being the source of inequality. He says they bought up property while it's cheap, then hold it until the forces of society, like labor, technology, speculation on nearby sites, increase the value. George proposed to do away with all the taxes except one single tax on the unearned profits to end monopoly landholding. Single tax clubs start springing up throughout the country and Henry George is going to nearly win a race for mayor of New York City in 1886. There's also going to be the journalist Edward Bellamy. He taps the same popular resentment against the inequalities of corporate capitalism in his utopian novel, Looking Backward, published in 1888. And in this book, a fictional Bostonia falls asleep in 1887 and awakens Rip Van Winkle-like in the year 2000. The competitive castrated society of the 19th century is just gone. In its place, we see an orderly utopia that's managed by a benevolent government trust. Fraternal cooperation and shared abundance reign during this. So like George's idea, Bellamy's philosophy inspires a host of clubs all around the nation. His followers are going to demand redistribution of wealth, civil service reform, and nationalization of railroads and utilities. Less popular but equally hostile to capitalism was going to be the Socialist Labor Party, formed in 1887, or 1877, sorry. And under Daniel de Leon, a West Indian immigrant, a stressed class conflict and called for a revolution to give workers control over production. De Leon refused to compromise his radical beliefs and the socialists end up attracting more intellectuals than workers. So some immigrants found its class consciousness appealing, but most rejected its radicalism and rigidity. A few party members bent on gaining greater support will revolt, and in 1901 found the more successful Socialist Party of America. Workers are beginning to organize their own responses to industrialism. By the mid-1880s, in response to the growing criticism of big business, several states in the South and West had enacted laws limiting the size of corporations. But state laws proved all too easy to evade when New Jersey and Delaware eased their rules to cover the whole nation. In 1890, the public clamor against trusts finally forced Congress to act. We see the Sherman Antitrust Act relied on the only constitutional authority Congress had over business, its right to regulate interstate commerce. The act outlawed every contract, combination in the form of trust or otherwise, or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce. The United States stood practically alone among industrialized nations in regulating the size of business combinations. Its language of the Sherman Antitrust Act is purposely vague, but it did give the government the power to break up trusts and other big businesses. So high was the regard, regard for rights of private property, however, the very few in Congress expected the government to exercise that power or the courts to uphold it. And they're right. In 1895, the Supreme Court is going to deal the law a major blow by severely limiting its scope. So 
that year, 1895, we see United States versus EC Knight Company. It held that businesses involved in manufacturing as opposed to trade or commerce lay outside the authority of the Sherman Antitrust Act. So not until after the turn of the century would the law be used to bust a trust. Until then, its vague wording meant that the government rarely used it. So the heated debates between the critics and the defenders of industrial capitalism made clear that the changes of American society were two-edged. So big businesses helped to rationalize the economy to increase national wealth and to tie the country together. Yet they also concentrated power, corrupted politics, and made the gap between rich and poor more apparent than ever. More to the point, the practices of big businesses subjected the economy to enormous disruptions. The banking system can't always keep pace with the demand for capital and businesses fail to distribute enough of their profits to sustain the purchasing power of workers. So the supply of goods periodically outstripped demand and then the wrenching cycle of boom and bust sets in. So three severe depressions, 1873 to 79, 1882 to 85, and 1893 to 97 rock the economy in the last third of the 19th century. So with hard times come fierce competition and ruthless cost cutting. So the environmental costs are often steep and plain to see. In Pittsburgh, some 14,000 smokestacks are spewing so much coal dust in the air that the city is permanently covered in haze. Sulfur, cyanide, ammonia, acid fumes, and other toxic gases fill the air around the chemical factories. Lead paint was the norm on many buildings, even though authorities knew it could damage muscles, nerves, and the brain. Equally normal was dumping chemical wastes into nearby rivers and streams. Hardly anyone worried, assuming that it promoted public health by killing infectious bacteria in the water. Alright, so looking at the industrial work itself. So in 1881, the Pittsburgh Bessemer Steel Company opens its new mill in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Nearly 400 men and boys went to work in its 60 acres of sheds. They kept the mill going around the clock by working in, 12, in two 12-hour shifts. In the furnace room, some men fainted from the heat, while the vibration and screeching of machinery deafened others. There were no breaks, even for lunch. Few industrial laborers worked under such extreme conditions, but the Homestead Mill reflected some common characteristics of industrial work. The use of machines for mass production, division of labor into very intricately organized, often repetitive tasks, and the dictatorship of the clock. At the turn of the century, two-thirds of all industrial work comes from large-scale mills. Under such conditions, labor paid very dearly for industrial progress. By 1900, most of those earning wages in industry worked six days a week, 10 hours a day. They held jobs that required more machines and fewer skills. Repetition of small chores replaced the fine craft work. In the 1880s, for example, almost all of the 40 different steps that went into making a pair of shoes by hand could be performed by a novice or green hand with a few days of instruction at a simple machine. With machines also come danger. Tending furnaces in a steel mill or plucking tobacco from cigarette rolling machines is tedious. If a worker became bored or tired, disaster would strike. Each year from 1880 to 1900, industrial mishaps killed an average of 35,000 wage earners and injured more than 500,000. Workers and their families could expect no payment from employers or government for death or injury. The law operated under the presumption that such accidents were the workers' fault. Higher productivity and profits were the ends, 
and for Frederick W. Taylor, efficiency was the means. During the 1870s and 1880s, Taylor undertook careful time and motion studies of workers' movements in the steel industry. He set up standard procedures and offered pay incentives for beating his production quotas. On one occasion, he designed 15 ore shovels, each for a separate task. 140 men were soon doing the work of 600. By the early 20th century, Taylorism was a full-blown philosophy, complete with its own professional society. Management engineers prescribed routines from which workers could not vary. For all the high ideals of Taylorism, ordinary laborers refused to perform as cogs in a vast industrial machine. So, in a variety of ways, they worked to maintain control. Many European immigrants continue to observe the numerous Saints' Days and other religious holidays of their homelands, regardless of factory rules. When the pressure of six-day weeks became too stifling, workers resisted by taking an unauthorized Blue Monday off. Or they slowed down production to reduce the grueling pace. Or they walked off the job. Come spring and warm weather, factories reported turnover rates of 100% or more as workers looked for jobs elsewhere. For some, seizing control of work was more than a matter of survival or self-respect. Many workers regarded themselves as citizens of a democratic republic. They expected to earn a competence, enough money to support and educate their families, and enough time to stay abreast of current affairs. Only a relatively few high-skilled workers could realize these democratic dreams. So more and more labor was being managed as another part of an integrated system of industry. So the need for industry for workers was so great that groups traditionally left out of the industrial ambit, like children, women, African-Americans, start finding themselves drawn into it. In the mines of Pennsylvania, very nimble-fingered eight-year-olds would snatch bits of slate from amid the chunks of coal. In Illinois, glass factories uh, had dog boys that would dash with trays of red-hot bottles to the cooling ovens. By 1900, the industrial labor force included some 1.7 million children, more than double the number 30 years earlier. Parents often had no choice. On average, children worked about 60 hours a week and carried home paychecks a third the size of those of adult males. Women had always labored on family farms, but by 1870, one out of every four non-agricultural workers was female. Industrialization inevitably pushed women into new jobs. Mainly, they worked in industries considered extensions of housework, food processing, textiles, and clothing, cigar making, and domestic service. In general, they earned one half of what men did. Nearly all women working in industry were single and young, anywhere from their mid-teens to their mid-twenties. Most lived in boarding houses or at home with their parents. Usually they contributed their wages to the family kitty or the family pot. Once married, they often took on a life of full-time house, full housework and child rearing. Only 5% of married women held jobs outside the home in 1900. However, married black women in need of income because of low wages paid to their husbands uh, were four times more likely than married white women to hold jobs outside the home. New methods of management and marketing opened positions for white-collar women as typewriters, telephone girls, bookkeepers, and secretaries. On rare occasions, women entered the professions, though law and medical schools were reluctant to admit them. Such discrimination drove ambitious, educated women into teaching and hospital nursing, for example. Both were considered forms of female nurturance. The growing numbers of women soon feminized these professions, pushing men upward into managerial slots or out entirely. Even more than white women, African-Americans faced discrimination in the workplace. 
They were paid less than whites and given menial jobs. Their greatest opportunities in industry often came as strike breakers to replace white workers and reduce the effectiveness of strikes. Once the strike ended, however, black workers were replaced themselves and hated by the white regulars all the more. African Americans fought discrimination in a variety of ways. Many found jobs outside of industry, especially in service trades such as railroad porters. Others learned crafts, and still others became professionals. After the turn of the century, black-owned businesses thrived in the growing black neighborhoods of the North and the South by catering to African American patrons. So whatever their separate experiences, working class Americans did improve their overall lot. Though the gap between the very rich and the very poor widened, most wage earners made some gains. Between 1860 and 1890, real daily wages, pay in terms of buying power, climbed some 50% as the prices gradually fell, and after 1890 the number of hours on the job began a slow decline. Yet most unskilled and semi-skilled workers in factories continued to receive low pay. In 1890, an unskilled laborer could expect about $1.50 for a 10-hour day, a skilled one perhaps twice that took about $600 a year to make ends meet, but most manufacturing workers made under $500 a year. Native-born white Americans tended to earn more than immigrants. Those who spoke English earned more than those who didn't. Men earned more than women, and all others earned more than African Americans and Asians. Few workers repeated the rags-to-riches rise of Andrew Carnegie, but some did rise despite periodic unemployment and ruthless wage cuts. About one quarter of the manual Laborers in one study entered the lower middle class in their lifetime. More often, such unskilled workers climbed in financial status within their own class. Most workers, seeing some improvement, believed in the American dream of success, even if they didn't really fully share in it. All right. So we've been talking about, you know, this new rising industrialization and the labor force. Um... So for ordinary workers to begin to control industrialization, they had to combine, just like businesses did. They needed to join together horizontally, organizing not just locally, but on a national scale as well. They needed to integrate vertically by coordinating action across a wide range of jobs and skills, as Andrew Carnegie coordinated the production of steel. Unions are going to be the workers' systematic response to industrialization. So in the United States, unions began forming before the Civil War. Skilled craft workers, carpenters, iron molders, cigar makers, they all united to counter the growing power of management. Railroad brotherhoods also furnished insurance for those hurt or killed on the accident-plagued lines. Largely local and exclusively male, these early craft unions remained weak and unconnected to each other as well as to the growing mass of unskilled workers. After the war, a group of craft unions, brotherhoods, and reformers united skilled and unskilled workers in a nationwide organization. The National Labor Union, the NLU, hailed the virtues of a simpler America when workers controlled their workday, earned a decent living, and had time to be good, informed citizens. NLU leaders attacked the wage system as unfair and enslaving and urged workers to manage their own factories. By the early 1870s, NLU ranks swelled to more than 600,000 people. Among other things, the NLU pressed for the eight-hour workday, the most popular labor demand of the era. Workers saw it as a way not merely of limiting their time on the job, but of limiting the power of employers over their lives. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will, proclaimed a banner at one labor rally. Despite the popularity of the issue, the NLU wilted during the Depression of 1873. Even more successful 
was a national union born in secrecy. In 1869, Uriah Stevens and nine Philadelphia garment cutters founded the noble and holy order of the Knights of Labor. They draped themselves in ritual and regalia to deepen their sense of solidarity and met in secret to evade hostile owners. The Knights remained small and fraternal for decades. Their strongly Protestant tone repelled Catholics, who made up almost half the workforce in many industries. In 1879, the Knights elected Terence V. Powderly as their Grand Master Workman. Handsome, dynamic, Irish, and Catholic, Powderly threw off the Knights' secrecy, dropped their rituals, and opened their ranks. He called for one big union to embrace the toiling millions, skilled and unskilled, men and women, natives and immigrants, all religions, all races. By 1886, membership had leapt to more than 700,000, including nearly 30,000 African Americans and 3,000 women. Barring them had hurt the Knights. So like the NLU, the Knights of Labor looked to abolish the wage system and in its place create a cooperative economy of worker-owned businesses. The Knights set up more than 140 cooperative workshops where workers shared decisions and profits and sponsored some 200 political candidates. To tame the new industrial order, they supported the eight-hour workday and the regulation of trusts. Underlying this program was a moral vision of society. If only people renounced greed, laziness, and dishonesty, Powderly argued, corruption and class division would disappear. Democracy would flourish. To reform citizens inside and outside the workplace, the Knights promoted the prohibition of child labor, convict labor, and liquor. <clears throat> So it was one thing to proclaim a moral vision for his union, quite another to coordinate the activities of so many members. Locals resorted to strikes and violence, actions that Powderly specifically condemned. In the mid-1880s, such stoppages run concessions from the Western Railroads, but the organization soon became associated with unsuccessful strikes and violent extremists. By 1890, the Knights of Labor were teetering near extinction. So the Knights' position as the premier union in the nation was taken up by the rival American Federation of Labor, the AFL. The AFL reflected the practicality of its leader, Samuel Gompers. Born in a London tenement, the son of a Jewish cigar maker, he had immigrated in 1863 with his family to New York's Lower East Side. Unlike the visionary Powderly, Gompers accepted capitalism and the wage system. What he wanted was pure and simple unionism. Higher wages, fewer hours, improved safety, more benefits. Gompers chose to organize highly skilled craft workers because they were difficult to replace. He then bargained with employers, using strikes and boycotts only as last resorts. With the Cigar Makers Union as his base, Gompers helped create the first National Federation of Craft Unions in 1881. In 1886, it was reorganized as the American Federation of Labor. 25 labor groups joined, representing some 150,000 workers. Stressing gradual concrete gains, he made the AFL the most powerful union in the country. By 1901, it had more than half a million members, almost a third of all skilled workers in America. Gompers was less interested in vertical integration, combining skilled and unskilled workers. For most of his career, he preserved the privileges of craftsmen and accepted their prejudices against women, blacks, and immigrants. Only two locals, the Cigar Makers Union and the Typographers Union, enrolled women. Most affiliates restricted black membership through high entrance fees and other discriminatory practices. 
So despite the success of the AFL, the laboring classes did not organize themselves as systematically as the barons of industry. At the turn of the century, union membership included less than 10% of industrial workers. Separated by different languages and nationalities, divided by issues of race and gender, workers resisted unionization during the 19th century. In fact, a strong strain of individualism often made them regard all collective action as being un-American. So as managers sought to increase their control over the workplace, workers often found themselves at the mercy of the new industrial order. Even in boom times, one in three workers was out of a job at least three or four months a year. In hard times when a worker's pay dropped and frustration mounted, when a mother worked all night and fell asleep during the day while caring for her children, when food prices suddenly jumped, violence might erupt. A mob of a thousand people with women in the lead marched through the Jewish quarter of Williamsburg last evening and wrecked half a dozen butcher shops, reported the New York Times in 1902. So in the late 19th century, a wave of labor activism sweeps the country. More often than mob violence, it was strikes and boycotts that challenged the authority of employers and gave evidence of working class identity and discontent. Most strikes broke out spontaneously, organized by informal leaders in a factory. Thousands of rallies and organized work stoppages were staged as well, often on behalf of the eight-hour workday in good times and bad by union and non-union workers alike. In 1877, the country's first nationwide strike opened an era of confrontation between labor and management. When the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad cut wages by 20%, a crew in Martinsburg, West Virginia, seized the local depot and blocked the line. Two-thirds of the nation's tracks shut down in sympathy. When companies hired strike breakers, striking worker workers torched the rail yards, smashed engines and cars, and tore up the track. Local police, state militia, and federal troops finally crushed the strike after 12 bloody days. In the wake, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 left 100 people dead and $10 million worth of railroad property in rubble. The Civil War was still fresh in the minds of residents of Atlanta when 3,000 laundresses struck for higher wages in 1881. Over 98% of the city's domestic workers were African-American women. Laundresses were among the most privileged domestics because they did not live in the homes where they worked. Instead, they washed clothes in common spaces in their own neighborhoods where they built first social then political networks. In 1881, they formed the Washer Society and threatened to lead the city without clean clothes unless their demands for higher wages were met. Little came of the strike, but it showed the appeal of organized dissent against economic exploitation and laid the groundwork for later civil rights protests. In 1886, tensions between labor and capital exploded in the Great Upheaval. It was a series of strikes, boycotts, and rallies that strengthened bonds among workers, but also turned national sympathies against labor. One of the most violent episodes occurred at Haymarket Square in Chicago. A group of anarchists was protesting the recent killing of workers by police at the McCormick Harvesting Company. So as rain, as it started raining, police moved in and ordered everyone out of the square. Suddenly, a bomb exploded. One officer was killed and six others were mortally wounded. When police opened fire, the crowd fired back. Nearly 70 more police officers were injured and at least four civilians dead. Conservatives charged that radicals were responsible for the Haymarket Massacre. Ordinary citizens who had supported labor grew fearful of its power to spark violence and disorder. Though the bomb thrower was never identified, eight anarchists were found guilty of conspiracy to murder. Seven were sentenced to death. 
Cities enlarged their police forces and states built more National Guard armories on the borders of working class neighborhoods. All right. So the strikes, rallies, and boycotts of 1886 were followed by a second surge of labor activism beginning in 1892. In the silver mines of Cordelaine, Idaho, I probably butchered that pronunciation, my apologies, and the coal mines near Tracy City, Tennessee, strikes flared and failed. In July, at Andrew Carnegie Steel Mill in Homestead, Pennsylvania, manager Henry Clay Frick announced that no union members could work there any longer, despite having negotiated a contract with the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers. When the workers struck, Frick called in the Pinkerton Detective Agency. 300 armed Pinkertons waged a fierce battle, battle with the strikers and lost, but not before three Pinkertons and seven workers had been killed. After an appeal from Frick, the governor of Pennsylvania sent 8,000 state militiamen to restore order. The strike was broken, the mill reopened, and the amalgamated association was crushed. The broadcast, or the broadest, sorry, <laughs> confrontation between labor and management took place two years later. A terrible depression had shaken the economy for almost a year when George Pullman, the owner of the Palace Car Factory and inventor of the plush railroad car, laid off workers and cut wages. Despite hard times, he kept rents high on company-owned housing in Pullman, the Illinois town where the factory was located. It was here that the cars carrying T.S. Hudson, our British tourist who traveled all across America, were made. Pullman refused to discuss any grievances, and in 1894, his workers struck. They managed to convince the new American Railway Union, the ARU, to support them by boycotting all trains that used Pullman cars. Quickly, the strike spread to 27 states and territories. Anxious railroad owners appealed to President Grover Cleveland for federal help on the slim pretext that the strike obstructed mail delivery. Strikers had actually been willing to handle mail trains without the Pullman cars, but Cleveland secured a court order halting the strike. He then called several thousand special deputies into Chicago to enforce it. In the rioting that followed, 12 people died and scores were arrested. But the strike was quashed. In all the labor disputes in this era, the central issue was the power to shape the new industrial systems. Employers always enjoyed the advantage. They hired and fired workers, set the terms of employment, and ruled the workplace. They fought unions with yellow dog contracts that forced workers to refuse to join a union. Blacklists circulated the names of labor agitators. Lockouts kept protesting workers from the plants and labor spies infiltrated their organizations. With a growing pool of labor and support from the government, employers could replace strikers and break up strikes. Management could also count on local, state, and federal authorities to send troops to break strikes. In addition, businesses used a powerful new legal weapon, the injunction. And an injunction is a court order requiring individuals or groups to participate in or refrain from a certain action. So these court orders prohibited certain actions, including strikes, by barring workers from interfering with their employer's business. It was just such an order that had brought federal deputies into the Pullman strike and put Eugene Debs, head of the railway union, behind bars. So just to kind of review... In a matter of only 30 or 40 years, the new industrial order transformed the landscape of America. It left its mark elsewhere in the world, too. British railroad tracks were covering some 200 miles, or sorry, 20,000 miles by the 1870s, while Germany and France were building even larger systems. Japan began constructing its network in the 1870s. 
other non-industrial countries followed, especially those rich in raw materials and agricultural commodities where efficient transportation systems could bring them to manufacturers and markets. In India, the British built the fourth longest railway system in the world. None outstripped the United States. By 1915, its rail network was longer than the next seven largest systems combined. With remarkable speed, networks of communication, transportation spread across the globe. Underwater telegraph cables were laying the groundwork from the United States to Europe in 1866, to Australia in 1871 and 72, Latin America in 72 and 73, West Africa by 1886, the completion of the Suez Canal in 1869, the same year a golden spike connected the last link of the Transcontinental Railroad in the United States, it hastened the switch from sail-powered to steam-driven ships, slicing thousands of miles from the journey between Europe and Asia. Wheat from the United States and India, wool from Australia, beef from Argentina, poured into Europe. Europe would send textiles, rail equipment, coal, and machinery to Asia and the Americas. As these networks are all tying together national economies, swings in the business cycle would produce global consequences. When an Austrian bank failed in 1873, depression soon reached the United States. In the mid-1880s and again in the mid-1890s, recessions drove prices down and unemployment up all across the industrialized world. So industrial workers bore the brunt of the burden, but in Europe they had greater success in unionizing, especially after anti-combination laws forbidding strikes were abolished after 1850. By 1900, British unions had signed up 2 million workers, twice the number of members in either the United States or Germany, as strikes multiplied and labor unions became more powerful, industrializing nations passed legislation that included the first social security systems and health insurance plans, but neither came to the United States until the Great Depression of the 1930s. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast and have a great day. Right now in Texas where I'm at, it's actually snowing. We're all stuck in inside and everything is basically shut down. So I hope no matter where you're at, wherever you're listening to this, you're safe, you're healthy, and you learn something new. Now, take care. Have a good day. Bye.